You are listening to Digfin Vox. Digfin is an online media group covering the digital transformation of financial services. Our podcast comes to you twice a month from our base in Hong Kong, Asia's leading financial center, where East meets West and developed markets meet the emerging consumer. Go to our website, www.digfingroup.com, so you don't miss out on our in-depth daily stories on how your clients and competitors are changing their business models across asset management, banking, capital markets, and insurance. Your podcast host is James Lindsay, and this is the voice of tech innovation in finance. This is Digfin Fox. This week, we're speaking to Dave Chapman, the executive director at BC Group and pioneer in Asia's crypto space. Dave tells Jane the story of how he discovered blockchain in 2012, leaving traditional finance and launching the first cryptocurrency exchange in Hong Kong, as well as leading OSL, one of the world's most successful digital asset brokerages. We discuss the future of digital assets and how they're innovating and transforming traditional finance. But... Before we kick off the show, we are offering podcast listeners a 15% discount. Use the code P-O-D-C-A-S-T, that's podcast, on our site now to access our in-depth research on fintech use cases, receive our daily news stories, and attend our exclusive events. Welcome back to Digfin Vox. Uh, this is James from Digfin, and I have the pleasure of, of our Guest this time around is Dave Chapman, Executive Director at BC Group. Uh, Dave and his, his uh, I guess, co-founders of, of this group, Ken Lo and uh, Hugh Madden, have been pioneers in Hong Kong's crypto space. Uh, and so we're delighted to have Dave join us and talk a little bit about what's going on. Um, but, but first, Dave, uh, tell us a little bit about BC Group itself, uh, because obviously it's a um, a structure that emerged from your previous ventures. People might be more familiar with ANX International or, or OSL. So just explain the, a little bit of the history of, of BC Group and how the different parts of the business fit together. Sure. So, James, thanks very much for having me on the, on the show today. Um, by background, um, I was working in traditional finance and investment banking and technology um, for the greater part of a decade. Uh, discovered Bitcoin in, in 2012 um, became so fascinated with it and fell in love with it that um, through the course of 2013, I realized that this would be the future uh, and this would be the, the new world of finance. And so as a result, I uh, took a leap of faith uh, alongside Ken and Hugh and uh, we left our traditional financial uh, finance jobs behind us and we started uh, a company called ANX International. And we were, I think, one of the first in Hong Kong to operate a, a cryptocurrency exchange, uh, which provided a, a very niche service um, to Hong Kong customers, right. um, and from there we matured, or um, you know, we sort of matured the the organisation to focus more on so also into the blockchain technology space. So we were able to white label our technology, um, and we grew the company to well, the company was profitable, um, and we had a large number of clients around the world using our services. And what kind of clients would these be? Uh, so from the for the for the cryptocurrency exchange business, uh, it focused on on retail predominantly around the world, um, and on the on the white label business, we would focus on a number of popular use cases, uh, anywhere from other people that wanted to operate cryptocurrency exchanges but didn't have the technology to do it, mm-hmm. um, all the way through to, for example, one very popular use case was uh, loyalty platforms, people that wanted to issue their own token or their own point. 
Um, and coincidentally, it just so happened to be on a blockchain, so it was great for transparency. Um, and there was a number of inclusion or a number of features that became very sticky and very popular. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll go back to that in a minute. But sure. Please continue your story. Uh, so, you know, fast forward to uh, the start of last year, um, we took, uh, you know, controlling stake of a main board listed company uh, called the BC Group, right. uh, alongside some very strategic partners of ours. Um, and the BC Group uh, focuses, it's, it's been main board listed on the, on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange for, for a large number of years now. And it had great synergies for us uh, because it focused on um, some marketing initiatives in, in Asia. Um, we already had a business that focused on marketing initiatives, initiatives in, in the same regions. So there was definitely synergies there. Uh, and we explained in intimate detail how we would leverage the last five years of our experience in the digital asset and blockchain space to you know, create new businesses within this entity. Uh, and as a result, um, you know, we've now, you know, private businesses uh, have been aside and completely um, separate from the, from the BC group. Okay. Uh, but you know, for the last year now, we've been uh, you know, creating new businesses within the BC group that focus on the digital asset space and the blockchain space. And why don't you give me one or two examples of that? Sure. The most prominent e example we have of, of, uh, of, a, of a business in the side of the BC group would be OSL. So OSL today is uh, Asia's largest and most prominent uh, digital asset brokerage uh, firm. So we facilitate very large buy and sell transactions uh, for you know, the institutional side of, of crypto. So our counterparts would include uh, funds, family offices, private banks, corporates, ultra high net worth individuals. Um, and you know, we're really becoming the prime broker of the digital asset space. Uh, we, you know, we're moving not only just into, not only are we facilitating uh, the OTC uh, initiatives, uh, we're also moving into options, repo with lending products, derivatives, synthetics, et cetera, et cetera. Really you know, delivering the services and the features that the institutional clients need to enter the space. And furthermore, the services that the institutional clients uh, have been used to and have been utilizing and have been leveraging for you know the, the, the better part exactly yeah. exactly and that's what we're hearing when when we speak to our clients today we've moved on from an era when you know back when I left HSBC to start you know moving into the digital asset space the the move was very surprising from a lot of my colleagues and uh, we've moved from an era where bitcoin uh, and you know digital assets was seen as a fad uh, by a lot of people, it was seen as a Ponzi. Uh, a lot of people thought that this wouldn't survive. And you know, throughout the last six years, we've actually seen it, that that view and that that stance on digital assets has gone complete 180. You know, people have now acknowledged that this asset class is here to stay. And you know, I'll be honest and say, some traditional financial institutions don't like what it represents. Right. But the reality is they've acknowledged the fact that, that it's here, here to stay. It's not going away. And whether they like what it represents or not, the, the traditional or the, the, uh, the view right now is, okay, well, if it's not going away, how do I make money? And so for, from an OSL perspective, uh, we're assisting a lot of these firms from entering into this space and furthermore provide the, 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 the type of services they're familiar with the legitimacy of a firm that is you know, publicly listed with a considerable market cap, uh, a firm that you know, does pride itself on compliance, risk and security, um, and provide the services that people uh, would expect from a, from a traditional counterpart in, in finance. How many aspects? So, I mean, prime brokerage is, is broking, trading on behalf of a, of a client, as well as um, the custody and admin aspects of it. Uh, how many of the features 
are readily available and working smoothly in a decentralized context versus classical? Uh, decentralized versus so, a say blockchain or and, you know blockchain enabled ver or or dealing with cryptocurrency or tokens versus uh, fiat in the classical world. Yeah, I think right now it's still a combination of the two. You know, we you know the the the, the larger counterparts that we deal with today, uh, they're not all crypto to crypto. You know, they're they're still you know sending US dollar wise to us. You know, they're sending you know twenty to fifty million dollar wise a day to buy crypto, and it's interesting how. Crypto is actually innovating traditional finance, you know, with respect to, you know, a lot of the tra traditional financial institutions we speak to, you know, T plus three settlement is what they're used to. And right. when you say to them that, that we can we can settle within minutes, right. it actually scares them a, a lot. Um, and so it's, it's there's an education process there. Um, but in, with respect to my earlier comment around traditional finance, you know, innovate, sorry, crypto innovating the traditional finance, it's, um, you know, if you look at some of the banking infrastructure today, they are leaning and gearing themselves towards instant settlement. And so some of our banking partners actually do actually provide a service which does yield almost near-time settlement for, for USD. Um, so it, it, it is, it's, I think the innovation in crypto is definitely having dividends in traditional finance right now. Okay. And would that, would that example extend to like payments areas, you know, the whole SWIFT versus uh, uh, Ripple? sort of uh, debates that we see yeah. uh, or banks introducing their own settlement coins. Yeah, so specifically, obviously, the news of the hour is, is JP Morgan uh, introducing a, 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 a private blockchain um, you know, f functionality that, that they claim will provide you know, faster and more efficient settlement. Um, you know, the, you know, the, the argument of, of this you know, newly launched, or, is, is it just a PR exercise? You know, is, it, is, is it a private blockchain? Is it just a database entry? Is it, uh, is it something that we're going to get a lot of PR out of? And, and who will also use it? I mean, you know, uh, is Bank of America or Goldman or Morgan Stanley going to use a JP Morgan coin for anything? Yeah, I, it's, a, it's a really good question. I think it's really early days. I think you know, the, the, the white elephant in the room is that you know, Jamie Dimon was... That the man of the hour in, in 2017 <laughs> yes. saying that Bitcoin was a fraud. Yeah. In 2018, he said that you know he 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 made a mistake in, in calling it a fraud, and, and then moved fast forward to now, and all of a sudden we've got JPM JPM coin. Um, it's you know I think one of the things that I, that I've witnessed in this journey is that shareholders want to make sure that they're that the that the entities they've invested in have a strategy around blockchain and around digital assets so whether this is a pr exercise you know i'm not I'm definitely not saying that it, that it is um i think it's innovative um i think it's it's too early to tell whether or not this will actually have some real substance to it yeah. i think overall though it does still adds credibility to the whole blockchain digital asset movement. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. We've seen a lot of projects that still have been ongoing in, um, you know, in, in the gloom of the, the, the bust last year. Um, you, you know, it would have been easy to dismiss the whole thing. Hmm. Um, and yet at the institutional level, there still seems to be uh, activity by serious people. Yeah, you know, 2018 was 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 pretty fascinating. Um, you know, in 2018, we were, you know, we were looking or gearing towards an asset class that was almost at a trillion dollars. So in in, in 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 traditional finance, that's still not a not a massive asset class, but it, but it's meaningful. Um, and then we saw you know this 85 90 percent correction, where the asset class today is only now 120 billion dollars, a very tiny asset class in the grand scheme of things. We saw Bitcoin that was heading towards you know twenty thousand dollars is now today trading at thirty six hundred dollars. Um, we saw some other fascinating events with this hyperbolic explosion of, of ICOs, these initial coin offerings or these token sales, which, you know, they've probably got a, 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 
a fairly due rap in terms of, of some, some of the ways that they were being exploited. Sure. Um, it really was Kickstarter on steroids. Uh, there was, but, but regardless of, of, of whether you say ICOs were good for the environment, for the industry or not, the, the reality is, is that there was no faster way to raise capital uh, during this period than to do an ICO. It completely disrupted venture capital model. Right. Um, and we saw an enormous amount of interest or we saw, you know, it, it disrupted VCs so much that they actually started creating their, crypt, own, their own crypto funds, you yes. know, in, in, in funds of funds into these ICO projects. And then obviously, you know, we can't talk about the hyperbolic explosion of ICOs without also talking about the fact that everyone got so drunk, not really understanding what it is that they were investing in. Uh, and then, you know, ultimately we, we had this hangover where people woke up to no one really knew what they were investing in and, and that's where we're at yeah. today. But but from, from an institutional investor point of view, let's say a hedge fund or family office is looking to, to do something in this space. Um, if I look at, you know, pick your chart of, of a bubble, mm. Japan, 1989, yep. uh, silver 10 years before that, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's always this massive spike, comes back down, and it never gets anywhere near those highs again. Now, um, I, I, so I've heard, you know, you, you can pitch the story about crypto, mm -hmm. uh, having this, you know, $100,000, whatever price of gold, uh, yada, yada. <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but given that, that decline, and yet the, a lot of the innovation that we're looking at now, you know, we, we mentioned uh, the JP Morgan coin mm -hmm. and things like that. And some of the other projects that I'm sure you guys are helping companies with, um, is this space a space for creating infrastructure and for creating projects that will have a secondary relationship to finance, or is it still a, a speculative investment play by sure. itself? Sure. So, so very good question. And I think you know you talked about comparing it to you know other bubbles and so on. Yeah. The, the bubble that I would compare this to is the internet. You know, we, we saw the dot com bubble go through with the likes of, you know, pets dot com. Right. You having this crazy valuation because they had because they had a website. And we know how that ended, but it also did give rise to powerhouses like Google and like Amazon and so on. Right. And we also have to, you know, if we want to look at the charts, this isn't the first time we've seen such an enormous correction in the likes of, of crypto. Okay, if we just take Bitcoin alone, you know, in the six years that I've been involved in this space, this is probably the five, fifth or sixth time that I've seen such an enormous correction. But what is interesting in the correction that we're going through now is that this is the only time where I've seen enormous amount of investment still coming around the infrastructure. Okay, in the previous corrections, everyone sits on the sidelines. It's like, oh, you know, I don't know if this is really, is it really going to play out? Maybe it is just a fad. Maybe it is, maybe this is just, you know, it isn't going to work. This is the only major correction that I've seen in the six years of being in this business where there's still an enormous amount of investment pouring in from the sides. Yeah. So last year, uh, sorry, in, in the big, at the end of 2017, we saw CME uh, announce Bitcoin futures, okay, and admittedly they're not physically settled, but Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs uh, are, are clearing those. Right. Uh, last year, we saw uh, the Intercontinental Exchange, the owner of NYSE, right. uh, with their $200 million investment into an institutional exchange backed. Um, you know, we're seeing Fidelity enter the space. Uh, this week, we saw some pension funds put down a back a $40 million worth of capital into the crypto. I mean, it comes back to what I've sort of said at the start of this of this interview is that this asset class finally it has been acknowledged that it's not going away. Yeah. And there's no better, there's no better uh, reinforcement than that than what's happening in the regulatory space. Okay, so, you know, back in 2013, when I entered, 
the regulators around the world were like, uh, you know, this isn't money. It's not a security. Um, we don't want to regulate it. And we saw some other regulators take the stance of saying we're going to ban it. Right. And that's like trying to ban the internet. Okay? It can't be done. So it was a pretty premature stance to something that probably was, was for probably greatly misunderstood. Um, what we're seeing now, however, is the regulators have acknowledged it's not going away. Uh, some jurisdictions have acknowledged that it will stimulate economic growth. And that some of the regulators are scrambling to make sure that they are providing adequate consumer protection. And, you know, at the BC Group, we're definitely pro-regulation. Uh, we do have healthy dialogue with the regulators to help, uh, you know, try and lobby, um, you know, regulation that makes sense. And this is something that we are very, very positive on for the foreseeable future. I think in the next two years, this will largely be globally regulated by every major jurisdiction. And what we're doing at the BC Group is implementing the tools, the policies, the procedures that are needed to provide a safe and, and, and you know, transparent, yeah. uh, auditable environment. Do you think the, um, the current licensing regimes will prove adequate for blockchain-based financial services? No. No, <laughs> no, because yeah, because we keep hearing. So, what kind of license? You know, in Hong Kong context, is it? You know, can I get a Type Seven if I want to be an exchange? Well, no. If can I get a Type One if I want to deal? No. Yeah. So, where where is it going to? And and you know, uh, so how how do you see this playing out? Well, we need major legislative efforts, which is going to be quite difficult, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the current regulation is not fit for purpose, and you know, technology moves faster than than any type of regulation you can wrap around it. And we saw that with the internet and, and, you know, and all the different areas of commerce and entertainment in our daily lives that were disrupted through such a, such a powerful shift um, that, that we now you know, have high-speed internet 24 hours a day in our pockets and, and it, it rules everything in our lives. Um, I think this is going to be the same sort of thing with, uh, with, with digital assets and the tokenization. Okay? And so we are seeing regulators, you know, including regulators in, in our home ground, Hong Kong, that are taking the very innovative approach of, of, of suggesting that we potentially need new regulation that, it, that is fit for purpose. You know, to, to reinforce, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, that we don't require regulation and, you know, Bitcoin is a libertarian view and it's, you know, it's used by anarchists. I mean, the, the reality is... You know, my personal belief is that for this asset class to prosper and for adoption to increase, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on who you are in this environment, you are going to have a playbook that is going to be necessary. Right. Um, another challenge for people in this space, for companies trying to, to do things, uh, has been just getting access to basic financial services. Mm -hmm. um, and that goes from just getting a bank account to, yep. um, to all the way to trying to get an, an audit uh, and so on. So tell us a little bit about your experience. I understand you guys actually have uh, gotten um, uh, the green light to, to be audited, um, which is, is pretty rare for a blockchain-based company. So tell us a little bit what happened to, to get that. Yeah, I mean, you've hit the nail on the, on the head there, uh, James, with respect to engaging in traditional finance it has been uh, i would say a challenging route from from the start but uh, you know it is becoming more the norm uh, that you know that blockchain organizations exist or you're dealing in digital assets and with this level of maturity and the legitimization through regulation through traditional finance entering this space it becomes um, you know it becomes easier to have dialogue with traditional finance such as banks and such as auditors um, excuse me that being said we do have a, a big four auditor that was appointed last year. It is in the in the public space, as per the, the exchange circulars that are on the, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange website. Um, you know, it was a, an enormous collaboration be, between ourselves and our auditor 
uh, to be in a position where they felt comfortable enough for, for to, 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 to audit our, our group from, from the entirety. And we have done a lot of innovation there. Um, there's probably some things that, that I'm not allowed to disclose, uh, but you know, being able to, as a result of the things we put in place, the compliance tools, um, you know, the, the real-time reconciliation against the blockchain, uh, and having our policies and procedures vetted, uh, it, you know, it's it's enabled us to provide a level of maturity not traditionally seen in this asset class. It's even gone as far as us being able to afford insurance on our custody for both our hot and cold wallets. Something that's as far as I'm aware of, no one else has been able to do that in the world. How, how do you, how have you dealt with issues like around understanding, verifying ownership of a of a token or a coin, um, understanding who owns what, when, and where, and, and how you value that? Yeah, I mean, a, a good question again, James. So one, again, it's not easy, and and in in a lot of these cases, there isn't really a black or white answer. Um, I, I guess to give you an example of of sort of those challenges is, you know, when we uh, accept and receive, you know, digital assets into our system, we actually vet them in real time um, uh, using chain analysis or coin purity tools to understand whether they've been tainted with dark web activities, whether they've been involved in an exchange hacking. And we can immediately, depending on the risk rating that we choose to abide by, we can actually immediately quarantine, quarantine those, to- those coins or those tokens, not to commingle them with the, with the greater pool of funds. So would you then accept like Monero or one of these kind of companies, no. that coins that are no. pure privacy? No, no. It, 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 the, 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 it's... It's ironic, or it's not ironic, it's funny to think that a lot of people think that Bitcoin and public blockchain protocols are fantastic to launder money. The reality is they're actually the worst things yeah. to launder money by because they're on a public ledger with, you know, for, the, for the entirety of their life that it can be scrutinized by anyone. But specifically around supporting protocols that, um, you know, where their attributes are geared towards anonymity, it's not something that we choose to do. It's, I've got no, I can't defend to a regulator or you know a banking partner as to why we would be uh, you know transacting in in, in such protocols. Yeah. I want to go back to you. You made the, anal- the analogy about this is uh, similar to the dot com boom. Sure. Uh, and you made the point that out of that came companies like you know Amazon, eBay, um, and even even Pets dot com. God bless them. Uh, you know, I mean, Amazon sells dog food online. They right? do. Um, who is the who's emerging from this space now, or what kind of play is going to emerge that will, you know, complete your analogy? Um, because if you're going to stick to that analogy, then we should already be at the stage where the the, the next giants are are, are forming and, and becoming, yep. uh, you know, somebody you could stick a bet on. Yeah, I think, and I think already those giants are starting to emerge. Um, you know, a lot of people will say, well, why doesn't Goldman Sachs enter this space? They'll just completely rule it. I mean, the reality is you cannot set up an operation like this overnight. It doesn't matter how much money you throw at it. Uh, so we may see some joint ventures, we may see some partnerships, we may see some acquisitions from traditional finance to try and break into the space. That being said, um, you know, I know that a lot of the traditional finance place, are, they are gearing up. You know, we do speak to a number of tier one investment banks and they are looking at our custody services. They are looking at how we you know, do block trades with you know, very large counterparts. They are very interested in this space, regardless of what they want to tell publicly. Uh, we do know for a fact they are gearing up. Um, but to get back to your question as to you know who to place the bets on, it's who are the people that have you know laid the the frameworks that are going to be required to survive 
in a business when it does thrive, when it is globally regulated, when it do need to comply with things that haven't really been built for, for a lot of the infrastructure today. And I think we will see a considerable amount of you know, players exit this space. Uh, we may see some consolidation, uh, but for you know, at the BC Group, we've built everything from the ground up. Uh, you know, we've always self-governed right from inception, with, despite this despite this whole industry being unregulated. Uh, but what we've done now is we've built the compliance tools necessary to to, to survive and for furthermore prosper. And so that goes anything from transaction monitoring to computer chain analysis to market surveillance. You know, these are all the type of you know, features and functionalities that everyone expects in regulated traditional financial markets, but it hasn't 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 entered this this wild wild west, which is very very quickly maturing. So the people that I'll be placing the bets on are the people that have had the foresight to say, well, we've tried to do it properly even in an unregulated space, and we believe we've done a very good job. Now that it is going to be regulated, let's what is who are the people that we're gonna that we're gonna bet on you, in that case? You're talking about in a in a context of financial services. Yes. Um, how about beyond that in terms of uh, people working on projects around either other industries or, or just pure privacy or security mm-hmm. or identity uh, issues? Um, are we seeing the, the future winners emerge from these areas as well or uh, unclear because finance was kind of the first uh, real use case? Um, you know, Bitcoin is, is money after all. Yeah, I think you know finance for me is, is still where where it will be at for the foreseeable future. I mean, I will be honest and say that you know from two thousand and fifteen through to probably late two thousand and seventeen, blockchain blockchain was probably the most overhyped you know buzzword since big data or cloud right. computing, and so a lot of people were sort of you know there there was a hammer that we were called blockchain and then we were trying to find the nails to hit. There was a lot of people that were trying to, to solve problems that either didn't exist and, and by thinking that it was going to be a blockchain, I mean, I'll have to admit and say it was a lot of what a bu- lot of buzz around it. And I think a lot of people are saying, okay, we've heard about all these real world, you know, endless possibilities, but where is the real use cases? And we have seen pilots done with, with respect to, you know, faster settlements and, and, and so on. And I think that blockchain definitely has a place to stay in technology. Uh, it's just going to take time to mature. Now, with respect to the, the other fringe use cases that you talked about, do I think blockchain is going to help identity? Yes. Do I think it's going to provide superior logistics and help healthcare and so on? I do. Is it going to happen overnight? No. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in, in 2018, we saw an enormous amount of new blockchain protocols that introduced, you know, all claiming to be better, all claiming right. to be faster, shinier than the original blockchain protocol, which was, of course, Bitcoin. Um, you know, these, you know, these claims have yet to be proven. Um, and, you know, in the confusion of all these new protocols that got released last year and then the year before, it's actually helped uh, validate Bitcoin's dominance. It's yeah. the, it's the original blockchain. It it it's battle battle hardened. It's battle hardened, but but we also know there's a lot of problems, right? I mean, the the electricity usage. Yep. Currently, the value of of the the coin is below the the cost of, of mining it, um, and just uh, you know a lot of the a lot of the the issues that went around it. There's still a lot of skepticism about who's who's using these things. Sure. Um, so I guess we, we're still also in a period where People in finance are starting to get it. They want to be on. They want to be on the, the, the train uh, of Wall Street 3.0 when it leaves the station. Mm. Um, but the use cases beyond that. So what I, I wanted to go back and kind of ask you, kind of, just to wrap up the conversation was, are when, when you talk about people investing in this space, you're helping facilitate those trades. Um, is it still about investing in currencies as units of speculative value? 
uh, or are there real use cases that people are looking into because they think it will it will be the use case itself that generates value for them rather than taking a punt on a on a currency? It, sure, uh, I'll be honest and say there's there's still a large amount of interest in. The, the speculative nature of, of cryptocurrency, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I don't think that's that has changed. I think the general view, though, is that public blockchains, whether it be Bitcoin or something else, definitely have a, a spot to play in finance. And, you know, one thing that I'm very passionate about is financial inclusion. You know, two-thirds of the world's population today don't have access to bank accounts or banking facilities. And, you know, one of the things that interests me greatly with Bitcoin and with public blockchains uh, is the fact that there is a possibility that this actually provides, you know, financial inclusion to a, a, a large amount of people. Which is where the, either as a, as a payment tool uh, or as perhaps a, an est, a securities token, uh, yeah. mimicking, mimicking, you know, basically a, a, you know, a derivative on, on, on a different asset that people could get a hold of. Correct. Correct. Yeah, and you know we haven't touched on this topic, but you know STOs or security token offerings. I mean, they are likely to be you know the, the they could possibly be the, you know the next catalyst for for this next boom of this industry. Which uh, you know I'm one quite enthusiastic and interested in seeing how that pans out. What has to happen for STOs to work? Is it about the bottom line use case? Is it about just uh, getting a bit of investor interest, or um, what do you think has to happen yeah. for STOs to to really play that? constructive role. So given how ICOs or these token sales played out the first time, there's no denying that that the technology works, right? And a lot of people now are looking at it and saying, well, the technology is awesome. Uh, it, it was definitely exploited by a number of, you know, bad players in the market. Um, I think what we see now is that people are saying, okay, how do I marry the best parts of this this technology that was originally originally used for these initial coin offerings, how do I partner that with with this this new innovative regulation that a lot of jurisdictions are scrambling to to, to own a piece of? Right. Um, I do think that you know STOs initially they they will only be offered to accredited professional investors. Uh, there will be a due diligence that's that's done on the token owners. Um, they will only operate in certain jurisdictions, and we are still waiting on more regulatory clarity as to how they how they. Exist because today. the tension there is the democratization of finance, <laughs> yeah. but only for accredited investors. I know it's 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 it is it's unfortunate that that's the way it plays out to start with. Now, whether that plays out that way or there's something that you know, I'm 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 not always right, James. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm more often wrong. But um, but <laughs> what I, I <laughs> yeah, but what I can say is that I do believe secured tokens uh, are going to be here to stay. I do think that they'll find new efficiencies in raising capital. Um, whether that be big or small, you know, if someone wants to do an IPO today, it's it's, it's an enormously complex and and costly exercise, and I think you know being able to raise capital in a more efficient um, and more effective manner through uh, a security token offering, it's I think that has enormous amount of gains for, for you know for the entire economy. Yeah, great. Well, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, Dave Chapman, thank you so much for uh, joining us on Digifin Box. My pleasure. Thank you very much as well. Thank you for listening. I'm James Lindsay, and when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the commercial director of Digital Group. If you enjoyed this podcast, please listen again and share it on social media so your friends can find it too.